Hi, welcome to Which Witch is Witch, a pop culture podcast about ladies who use magic. I'm Derek. And I'm Regina. And today we're going to talk about witches who have really complicated stories and are also complicated for us to talk about because neither one of us is totally qualified to discuss the unique issues surrounding each of these wishes, but we're going to give it a shot and see what happens, and hopefully it'll be great. Yeah, both of these witches bring up uh, social conversations in the real world that neither one of us are in a position to really be an authority on, but they're still interesting and fun to talk about, so let's just power through, let's talk about them. Let's talk about them, because it's better to talk about them than not to talk about them. And so, Derek, which witch are you going to talk about today? I would love to talk to you about Bayonetta, from the video game series, Bayonetta. I love that game! In your wickedness, you have broken the ancient commandments and crafted a bond with one of the light. Our laws are clear. They demand you be eternally imprisoned. As for the impure child, she must be kept from the path of the dark arts forever. So Bayonetta, also known as Cereza, is the offspring of a forbidden love between an Umbra witch and a Lumen sage. Since the witches were the keepers of darkness and the sages were the guardians of light, there's this whole to-do about the two factions keeping separated, and so Cereza's birth led to everyone going to war and almost all the witches and sages died. I'm leaving out a ton of stuff because the story is way complicated, but basically Cereza's best friend Jean, a witch, Jean locks her away for 500 years so that her father, Balder, the last of the Lumen sages, couldn't get to her and use the dark essence inside of his daughter to destroy her reality and rebuild it in his image. You know, typical dad stuff. Typical dad stuff. When she wakes up 500 years later, she has no memory of who she is or what happened, calls herself Bayonetta, and declares a one-woman war on heaven in order to attempt to get her memories back, bringing her face to face with her jerk of a father who somehow thinks that using his daughter to break the universe is the right thing to do. Also, she is confident and amazing and unstoppable and has no time for anybody who questions her methods. Mm-hmm. Bayonetta is great. I really enjoy Bayonetta. I enjoy her guns. I enjoy her magical hair. Mm-hmm. I really want to know what shampoo she uses so that my hair can also be like Bayonetta's hair. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear more about Bayonetta. It's it's amazing to me that her story is so complicated. I didn't really know that there was all that richness in her backstory. So the games tell her origin and like the origin of the Lumen Sages and the Umber Witches and the forces of heaven and hell, which in this are referred to as Inferno and Paradiso, and she's in the world of Purgatorio. If you're familiar with Dante or Judeo-Christian mythology whatsoever, all of this should sound vaguely familiar, but it's very convoluted and told in sort of a fractured manner because she does not have her memories at the beginning and is slowly piecing them together. So the game makes a lot more sense the second time you play it, basically. So let's get into what makes Bayonetta a witch. The first law of witchiness is that the witch in question identifies as female. Does Bayonetta identify as female? Bayonetta definitely presents as a lady. She is aggressively feminine, thrusting her hips and chest in a manner that would seem exploitative if it weren't for the fact that she's only doing it for herself. There are never any men leering at her, nor are her enemies likely to be distracted by a woman's curves and coups because 
well, they're all sexless angels and demons. She owns her body, she's proud of it, and she flaunts her ability to use it much the same as a drummer spins their sticks or a poker player shuffles their cards with gusto. That's the way she uses her feminine body. Her body is a deadly tool, and she knows it. Bayonetta's voice actress, Helena Taylor, even described the character as, quote, the woman that all women would love to be and no woman is. Interesting. Well, the whole the whole notion of there not being any other men in her immediate realm is kind of interesting to me. Because I played through probably the first two hours or so of Bayonetta. Which is I, not I never very finished much, the game. I just It's a long game. I just like jumped in and I, I mashed some buttons and I had a great time and then I, I never picked it up again, which happens with video games for me often. Oh, yeah. It's interesting to me that she is a woman in an environment where there aren't any men around. Well, there are men, but they're not in a position to objectify her. So Within the game context. Exactly. So the men who are there, there's Rodan, who is her arms dealer and bartender. There is Enzo, who's her mortal sort of lackey. He gathers information for her and she really pushes him around. She's kind of relentless in like treating him basically like a dog. There's Luca, who is a mortal reporter and he is convinced that he's going to find out the truth about her but he can't really see her because they're on different planes of existence and she kind of messes around with him because she's like oh cute little mortal thinks he's going to get the better of me he's not (laughs) so those are the three real men that pop up frequently in her life there's absolutely no even remotely romantic relationship between her and Rodan he's just the guy who makes weapons for her Mm. and there's Enzo, who she treats like garbage because to her, he basically is. And there's Luca, who doesn't have a clue and can't see her. Yeah, it's interesting to me that she is very proud of her body and acts in a manner that could be interpreted as very sexualized. And the context that she is in within her story, I don't know, it's just an interesting choice because there's... There's not like the male viewers within her context. So if you were a female person playing this game, then you have Bayonetta being really sexualized and it's just an all lady experience. I don't know. It's kind of, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to me. Well, I always found it really interesting that the character design was actually done by a woman at Platinum Games, the studio that made it. So a lot of people give credit to Hideki Kamiya, who is the director of Bayonetta, and his whole intention was just to make a stylish action game, which he had been doing before when he was at Capcom. He did Devil May Cry and Resident Evil and things like that. When he was doing Bayonetta, he knew that he wanted to have a female lead because there weren't enough games doing that. And he went to Marie Shimazaki and gave her just three notes for the design. He said that one, she was going to be female. Two, she was going to be a modern witch. And three, she was going to use four guns at once. That was all he told her. And she did dozens, if not hundreds of designs of what her sort of idealized strong woman would be. And in several interviews since the games have come out, Marie Shimazaki has said that she feels that Bayonetta is a symbol of womanly pride and like she feels strong when she compares herself to Bayonetta and she like sees all the things that Bayonetta can do. She doesn't see her as a sexual icon. She sees her as a pillar of power for femininity. Yeah, I think that's really awesome. And I think that that's 
kind of an interesting thing that happens where you take a look at what a strong female character is in isolation, and then you take a look at what actually resonates as being empowering and strong to different women, and there's not always overlap there. I think there's a tendency to look down upon women who have confidence in their sexuality as automatically being victims of male gaze, but that's not necessarily true, and I think Bayonet is a really cool example of that. Yeah, and this is one of the things I've always been fascinated by in terms of art and pop culture is the difference between the intent of the creator and the read of the audience. The artist can't control how the audience will react to something. They can try to steer the audience, but they can't tell the audience how to feel about a thing. And so when you have consumers react in such a strong manner opposite of what the artist intended, you kind of have to question it. But there has been enough conversation about Bayonetta since the first game came out that it feels like there has been enough appreciation on both sides. There have been plenty of voices saying it's vulgar, it's overly sexual, it's inappropriate. And there's been plenty of voices saying like, no, this is powerful, this is confident, this is strength. It's a complex issue, for sure. But as a straight white male, my opinion doesn't mean anything on this. <laughs> But I think it's it's good to be able to open the conversation. Just because you're not the authority on it doesn't mean you can't participate at the table and hear what other people have to say. So we've talked about how Bayonetta identifies as female. Let's move on to the second law of witchiness, that she practice magic. How does Bayonetta practice magic? Oh, Bayonetta has crazy magic powers. So much so that the games tend to throw them at you in a manner specifically designed to keep the players on their toes. One minute she's falling through the air, swinging swords made out of her own hair at angels, and the next she's walking up the walls of a church dodging fireballs by slowing time around her, and the next she's manifested an enormous demon and using it to fight angels like Godzilla stomping through Tokyo. Time means nothing to her, gravity means nothing to her, rain! means nothing to her as she just reaches out and freezes a stream of raindrops into an ice spear and then chucks it at her enemies. The woman transforms into a panther when she runs and into a butterfly when she jumps. She's got magic for days. That's so much magic. It's a lot of magic. I can't and the hair, that's my favorite part of Bayonetta is the hair magic. As a personal aside, I have had very short hair, and I have had very long hair, and I've had every hair possible in between. And honestly, I would grow my hair out to my waist if I knew that I could magically control it to be both a very attractive outfit and a deadly weapon. So yeah, Bayonetta wears what appears to be a sort of leather catsuit, but it is actually finely spun like her own hair woven around her with magic. So cool. And as she does bigger, badder attacks against the bad guys, she uses that hair as weapons and as like big implements with which to punish her foes. And so it actually removes part of her clothing because it's her hair. So there's also the possibility of male gaze there in that the more big attacks you do, the more skin she's showing. And that's absolutely true. And most of the time, I'm going to argue male gaze was at work all the time. At the same time, I kind of have to give props to the people who 
are writing the magic laws in this game because that makes perfect sense because it's it's the law of conservation of matter like of course if you're you're gonna do really big hair magic and your hair also doubles as your outfit you're gonna have less outfit the more hair magic you're using i don't know i i definitely think it's male gaze but i also think it's a clever use of the conservation of matter so magic yeah i will argue in the design perspective there's certainly a little bit of male gaze there if not more than a little bit but from the like practical storytelling standpoint it makes perfect sense that she has so much poise and so much confidence that a little bit of nudity doesn't mean a thing to her she's so comfortable in her own skin she's using it in practical purposes in terms of like oh now it's a big monster that chews on you that's what my hair is my hair is chewing on you. that just reminds me of there's this free the nipple campaign have you heard of this is is this the whole thing about how like you can show male nipples but you can't show female nipples yeah and i think that bayonetta would probably be on team hashtag free the nipple because there is a tendency in our culture to automatically view the female body as a sexual object because of patriarchy and male gaze and all of that kind of stuff and here we have this witch who is really going against that status quo and really rejecting the overculture's desire to sexualize the female body and saying, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to use my hair slash outfit to defeat my enemies. And if that means you're going to see a little bit more of my body, well, that's your problem and not mine. So the next law of witchiness is that the witch in question practices feminism. How does Bayonetta practice feminism, if at all? So if Bayonetta is not a feminist icon, I think she damn well deserves to be. She doesn't let anyone knock her down, be they man or god. She literally goes to hell to rescue the soul of her best friend, Jean, who is like a sister to her. When her manipulative jerk of a father attempts to mansplain the plot of the game to her, Bayonetta just cuts him off mid-sentence by shooting him right in the head. (laughs) She doesn't have time for your male-centric chicanery. This lady's got work to do and you're in her way. That's awesome. I feel like we should just leave it at that. Now let's take a look at the next law of witchiness. How is Bayonetta persecuted and or misunderstood? So within the story of the games, Bayonetta is persecuted by the hordes of heaven as they perceive her to be dark and evil and a stain on existence. In a meta real world sense, Bayonetta gets a lot of flack from people because of the aforementioned sexually provocative presentation of the game. She's, like I said, seen in skin tight cat suits and she's impossibly fit, like the idealized version of a supermodel who could 100% kill you in an instant without really trying. Plus, there's all sorts of slow motion moments in the game where her sexuality is underlined, such as enemy spears gently grazing her sides, cutting away any real clothes she was wearing to reveal her magic hair cat suit. When the camera closes up on her rear end as she straddles an enemy and rides them like a bucking bronco. At first glance, these demonstrations of her sexuality are extremely exploitative and rightly upsetting, but once you spend some time with the game, hang out with the characters, and live in their skewed vision of the mortal realm, you realize there's nothing actually sexual about it. The characters are just kind of enjoying themselves, and she's not trying to impress any man anywhere. She just likes being provocative, much in the same way Madonna and Lady Gaga do. I really like the comparison of Bayonetta and Lady Gaga. I feel like they would be buds. Oh, they'd absolutely have a great time. I'm sure Bayonetta would love to pop up in the Super Bowl halftime show. Can we make a case for Lady Gaga? As a witch? I'm sure if we tried, we could. We have the technology. We have the technology, yes. 
So, Bayonetta, definitely misunderstood. Complex character, though. Mm -hmm. Moving on to the last law of witchiness, is Bayonetta bonded to a sentience larger than herself? So, Bayonetta is a distinct character in her world because she's actually been cut off from a larger sentience. Her story is heavily rooted in Judeo-Christian mythology, and throughout both games in the series, she battles the armies of heaven and hell, both of whom speak exclusively in Enochian, the language of angels that was first recorded by John Dee and Edward Kelly in the 16th century. That's real. That's not a thing they made up for the game. People have been studying the ancient angelic language in the real world for 500 years now. The name Enochian comes from Enoch, the last man known to speak the language fluently when he communicated with God and the angels way, way back in the seventh generation of man after the Garden of Eden. For more information about Enoch in relation to flashy beat-em-up video games, check out El Shaddai, Ascension of the Metatron. Bayonetta possesses the left eye of the world, one of two magic MacGuffins that can awaken sleeping gods, hence the whole plan to destroy and rebuild existence. Since the eye is physically inside of her, I would say that counts as a bond. So, yeah, kind of. Yeah, say so i'm gonna i'm gonna say definitely bonded definitely bonded kind of a sentience kind of a sentience yeah okay also if you want to enoch i could talk a lot about the enochian language and there's a whole passage in the second half of the satanic bible that are the enochian keys which are used in rituals both satanic and otherwise the enochian language and the language of angels in general has a long history of being used in witchcraft both practically philosophical and folkloric so if you want to get down with those those angels but here's a really interesting thing that i love about bayonetta so similar to how a few episodes ago we talked about klingon in star trek and the dothraki language in game of thrones there's not a lot of documented Enochian language. Like, people have been studying it for a long time, but there's not, like, a ton of it actually written down. Mm -hmm. The developers of the game had a team of linguistics experts pour over all of that and write more Enochian for the game using the same logic and patterns. Because throughout the two games, all of the angels and demons are speaking Enochian. That's awesome. And it perfectly matches the stuff that we've had for 500 years. So they did a ton of language building for these games that fits in perfectly with all that Judeo-Christian research. Wow, that's like a really deep dive for a button mashing game. I'm really impressed. They did so much work for this game that people really don't think about. Yeah, seems like it. So I think we've made a solid case for Bayonetta being a witch and possibly being problematic in terms of sexuality, possibly not. Let's move on. Regina, why don't you tell me about the witch that you're going to have a hard time explaining today? (laughs) Who's your witch? The witch I'm going to talk about today is Lord Fanny, 
a trans shaman who appears in Grant Morrison's comic series The Invisibles. Fanny is a descendant of a long line of Mexican witches in Brazil. Here's the thing about Fanny, though. She was born biologically male, and due to the fact that witches can't be male in this magic system, she was raised as a girl by her maternal grandmother. During the course of the comics, we dip into and out of Fanny's specific story and origin, while simultaneously seeing how she works with the Invisibles, who are a group of freedom fighters working to save humanity from extra-dimensional demons who have enslaved everyone without their knowing. The Invisibles is one of those comics that I have to make a caveat that I have only read this through this series one time, and I feel like in order to really talk eloquently about it, you have to have read it multiple times because it's this combination of philosophy, mythology, magic, sexual politics, actual politics, time travel, LSD. There's just like so much happening in here that not only is Lord Fanny an interesting and complex and difficult to tack down character, but the story that she lives in is a difficult thing to just explain simply for the plot. It would take the entire episode for me to explain the plot of what the Invisibles is. We're not going to do that. We're just going to talk about Lord Fanny, who's an awesome witch. So Grant Morrison, who wrote The Invisibles, yeah, he's known for having very layered and dense and structurally complex storytelling methods. I loved The Invisibles, but similar caveat, I last read it 10 years ago. (laughs) I read it when I was working in an art library. I've been meaning to get back to it after all these years and just haven't. I wind up just reading Transmetropolitan by Warren Ellis instead. It's definitely one of those landmark pieces of monthly pop comics that sort of changed the landscape and made people rethink what was possible in terms of sequential storytelling. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that's really amazing about The Invisibles is that it it features a trans main character. We're going to get into the complexities and the, some of the problematic things with that, but there aren't very many representations of trans characters in general in comics and this came out this is like the late uh, 90s early aughts something like that yeah so way before trans issues were as i think back then people referred to it as that person had a sex change they didn't use concepts like that person is a man living in a woman's body or they were born with a male body but they are a woman or anything like that they didn't consider transsexuality the way we do today definitely not and you can i'm gonna get into that when we talk about our laws as far as the complexities and the differences between transsexual transvestite i i'm gonna also put a big caveat on i am not a trans person i am a cisgendered half filipino half american lady who passes for white so there's Big caveat, I'm talking about an experience that I do not have firsthand knowledge of, and I'm going to try to be super respectful while discussing this, but big disclaimer, I am not an authority on this, and I am just trying to bring Lord Fanny into the discussion of witchery in a way that is sensitive and hopefully fun at the same time so the first rule of witchiness is that the witch in question present as female i'm pretty sure you've covered this a little bit but let's just for the sake of checking off the box does lord fanny of the invisibles identify as female so this is a very complex question in the case of fanny i'm going to say yes 
Fanny identifies as female, but I'm going to try to break it down a little bit and get into the complex issue of the way this is treated in the comic. So Fanny was effectively forced into female gender identity at a young age and as such identifies as female because of it. So this is super problematic in a depiction of a trans character because there is that sense of this minor being forced into a gender identity. Fanny vacillates between identifying herself as male or female and you can never really be sure which pronoun she'll use in the comics, but it's generally agreed upon in the text that Fanny is a male-to-female trans person. Despite the author not really having a grasp on the difference between a transsexual person, a transvestite, and a drag queen. At the end of the day, Fanny can only be a witch in the magic system set up in this series if she identifies as female, which, for the most part, she does. One of the things that I enjoyed about The Invisibles was that it did have a very set structure on how magic works in that world, specifically because the author, Grant Morrison, is himself well documented as a practicing witch himself. Yes, he is a chaos magician. To step back to one of our previous topics, he was also one of the prominent authors on Satana for DC Comics, and so he used his understanding of chaos magic from that in her book. But moving on, so second rule of wittiness is that the witch in question practice magic. Can you tell me if and how Lord Fanny practices magic? So Lord Fanny definitely practices magic from her super intense shamanistic induction into witchdom on top of a temple to weird reality and time shifts. Her magic is super powerful. We kind of come back to gender identity here, though, because her magic works best when she presents as female. There are times when she isn't in a super femme outfit, and her magic suffers from like a minus two to arcana. It's really weird. And then when she has her lipstick on, watch out because her magic is super powerful and usually has some kind of sex or death theme. Additionally, she has this cool liquid metal soul that she can turn into armor, much like one of our previous witches, Magic from the X-Men. I kind of like that in this context, Lord Fanny draws her magic power and magic strength from femininity. The fact that if she does the exact same things but is not wearing women's clothes and not wearing women's makeup, then she can't do the same magic that she could otherwise. Right, because that's how the magic system is really locked into into those rules but again it's it's cool on the one hand because it's like there's inherent power in embracing femininity and like that's one read that's really awesome and then there's the other part of it which again caveat because i'm speaking to trans issues that i'm i don't have firsthand experience with but the way it's presented in the book it reads to me more as Fanny being more like a drag queen and it's more about the theatrics and the ritual of putting on makeup in order to make herself female versus a trans person is female whether she's wearing lipstick or not wearing lipstick that doesn't make her more or less female if a trans person is female she's female versus when you're looking at somebody like a, a drag queen or a transvestite, there's a little bit more of that distinct relationship between the ritual of putting on women's clothing, the ritual of putting on that lipstick in order to embody that aspect of her personality. So I, I think there's there's two sides to it. On the one hand, there's the embracing femininity as being powerful magic tool 
awesome. Then there's the other hand where it's like, well, if we are going with the idea that Fanny is a trans person as it's presented in the book as a male to female trans person, then the whole notion of her needing to put on the lipstick to be more feminine and to to be a woman kind of is problematic. So the third law of witchiness is that the witch in question must practice or demonstrate feminism. Can you tell me how Lord Fanny practices or demonstrates feminism? Well, she does, sort of. This is another case of a feminist character living in a universe that isn't very feminist and being written by an author that has a dubious at best grasp on feminism. Lord Fanny constantly pushes at gender boundaries and norms and is pretty much consistently challenging other characters' thoughts about what femininity even is. Enemies don't take her seriously because of her feminine gender expression, which she takes to full advantage. Yay, feminism! Yeah, that sounds kind of badass so far. That said, we are looking at a character who, while presented in the text as transsexual, is in reality more of a, I want to say a spiritual transvestite who is exploited at every turn. She becomes a sacred prostitute in honor to her patron deity, who is a goddess of lust and filth. During that time, she's brutally gang-raped. Fanny and the rest of her trans drag queen, Morrison doesn't really understand the difference, friends are portrayed as obsessed with drugs and sex and swallow anything that's given to them, which, I mean, come on, if anyone knows the dangers of taking unknown drugs from a stranger and then following them into a bathroom, is trans people. So, yeah, Fanny is probably feminist, even if The Invisibles as a comic series probably isn't at the same time you, you gotta remember like this is a piece of media that's now 20 years old it is it's Think 20 about years the old other media that was out there 20 years ago i'm sure i mean even even the west wing has lost some of its teeth and that's not as old as the invisibles right and i again despite the problems i feel like it's really valuable because there is a trans character where there weren't other comics dealing with this issue right. at all Which at the time was hugely progressive exactly it was a big big deal exactly and it and and it is and you have to kind of give it props for taking that risk even though as i always like to say it's totally okay to like problematic things as long as you can identify them okay so the fourth rule of witchiness can you tell me if and how lord fanny is persecuted or misunderstood i'm going to give the classic which which is which pop culture which is most common way to be misunderstood by their creator i think i've made plenty of examples already of how morrison just doesn't understand fanny or trans identities or feminism so i'm just gonna right there yeah that's enough anyway moving on fifth rule of witchiness can you tell me if and how Lord Fanny is bonded to a sentience larger than herself? Yes, Lord Fanny is bonded to a sentience named Tetzalotl. I do not know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. If I'm not, write to me and tell me how to pronounce it correctly. So Fanny calls upon this goddess's powers to work some really intense sex and death magic, to travel through time, and to create her soul armor, which manifests by her soul flowing weirdly out of her mouth and nose. Ew. She also does a magical ritual to be possessed by another god whose name I can't pronounce. She gains passage to the land of the dead by telling him a joke and making him laugh. Only thing is, this ritual puts her in a position where her body could be kidnapped. Oops. 
But yeah, definitely bonded to Ascension. I said this earlier, but that's a complicated story. The whole thing is really complicated. Okay, so yeah, a lot of things to think about with Lord Fanny. But the next thing that we need to think about is who would you invite into your coven? Regina, if you could only have one, would you have Bayonetta or Lord Fanny in your coven? Oh, this is a tough one. Because on the one hand, I really want Bayonetta to teach me how to do that with my hair. But on the other hand, Lord Fanny has this soul armor and she's really funny. Like she makes this death god laugh and I'm not that funny. Like she could help me out. We would have a much better podcast if Lord Fanny could help me out with that. Okay, you think on that. I'll give my answer real quick. Yeah, you, Lord you Fanny. do yours. Hands down, really? Lord Fanny. Don't get me wrong. I love Bayonetta. Bayonetta's awesome. She's amazing. She can do all the things. When she does sporadically hang out with humans, she's pretty cool to them most of the time, aside from Enzo, who she's just constantly addicted to. But she's not going to help me with my spells. She's just going to do her own thing. She's not going to be interested in our day-to-day whatever we're doing. She's got her own agenda that she's so focused on. And that's fine. You go do that. Lord Fanny is fun to hang out with. Lord, Lord Fanny, Fanny is, is totally out. chill and like she's a good prankster and she's just generally fun. So yeah, I'd, I'd much rather spend my social time with Lord Fanny. So that's how it's going. At one point in the book, she says something like, yeah, okay, the end of the world can happen or whatever, but can it wait till after I show you this dress I got? And I feel like, yeah, she's great. She's funny. She's pretty chill. Yeah, when I think about when I think about Bayonetta and the fact that she is probably out for her own agenda, she's probably not really a team player. So it would be a little difficult to work with her in a coven. I think I would give Bayonetta a call, see if she would teach me the hair thing, and but then I would invite Lord Fanny into my coven and we would have a great time. Yeah, Bayonetta is very much a solo act, whereas Lord Fanny works within a team, the Invisibles. Yeah. So. It just makes sense to me that she would be the one to join a coven. Definitely. So I guess Lord Fanny for both of us, right? The other place Lord Fanny is really going to have a good time. Where's that? The Cauldron Cabaret. Ooh. Lord Fanny would have such a fun time at the Cauldron Cabaret. Tell me how you envision Lord Fanny hanging out. Tell me about this. Lord Fanny would walk in and it would be like everything, everything would like stop for a minute. And there would be a little bit of like who's that girl, you know, and lights. And then Lord Fanny would just walk in and blow kisses and be at the bar and everybody would be like, oh, Lord Fanny's here. Now the night can begin. She would have a great time. She would dance a lot. She would definitely be interested in having an act. I don't know if it would be a solo act or if it would be uh, an ensemble with... The Sandersons or somebody, but she would definitely... Would she, would she be singing? Would she be dancing? Is she a juggler? What do you see Lord Fanny doing? Oh, definitely singing. Definitely like a singing, a singing and full-on cabaret. It would be full-on cabaret. It would be comedy, singing, dancing, and probably a little bit of stripping. It would be the full cabaret experience. All right. Good to know. I feel like the way you described Lord Fanny walking in and just having a blast... I can see Bayonetta by her side and being like, yes, this is great. 
the thing that you're doing right now, I'm all about <laughs> it. Because every time Bayonetta walks into a room for the first time, whenever she's like on the scene, everything stops. Spotlight's on her. She just stretches out her arms and is like, does a little strut. And then she'll like do a cartwheel over one of the bar tables and right. doing like elegant long steps from tabletop to tabletop doing spins. At the beginning of the first game, she like is in a graveyard and she's like dancing on top of the tombstones. Oh, like it's that amazing. scene in Return of the Living Dead? Yes, a lot like that. I imagine some of the witches would be like, hey, that looks great. And some of the witches would be like, I'm sick of her. I can't, <laughs> can't, can't do this. Like Leia Organa would definitely be like, I don't care for this. This whole thing she's doing, I'm I'm just going to stay over here with my drink. Yeah. I'm fine. Whereas I feel like Fanny would get along with everybody. Oh, yeah. She's a people person Yeah. For sure. The only thing I would say is I would be a little wary of Fanny around our kid witches because Fanny has a very sordid history with illegal substances. And I don't want that anywhere near our, our kid witches. So. so impressionable. You don't want any questionable potions making their way to those witches. Cauldron Cabaret is one of the few places where I feel like the kids' table is actually a really cool place to be. It is a cool place to be. Well, that about wraps things up for this episode of Which Witch is Witch. Now that you've heard what we have to say, what do you think? Who would you invite into your coven? Do you know how to pronounce Tetzeltotl? Let us know at witchwitchcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at witchwitchcast. That's W-H-I-C-H-W-I-T-C-H-C-A-S-T. We'll be back here again on March 16th to talk about more ladies that do crazy things with magical powers. Until then, don't anger the Elder Gods. Subscribe to Witch Witches Witch on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, wherever your pods may be cast. Until then... Yeah. <laughs> Das ist ein